Well, good morning. Wonderful to see you here today in this significant season of our church's life. Some years ago, my wife Amy and I made a visit to a missionary couple with whom our church is connected in the Mathari Valley of Nairobi, to which our Kenya team will be going very shortly. I will never forget walking into the entrance of this vast community, uh, 600,000 people living in this very uh, compact uh, set of shanties and shacks uh, built out of cardboard and tin and garbage and anything else that people could scavenge up to make a house for themselves and their families. These shanties were separated by narrow dirt pathways that were strewn with garbage and uh, broken glass. And children uh, scampered about in this environment, uh, barefooted, hunting for trash, something that they could pick up to eat or to sell in order to provide for their families. What I remember most clearly was the stench that filled the place, the incredible odor of all of that rotting garbage and all of that despair. Uh, And in my mind's eye is a particular vision of crossing over a very narrow bridgeway that uh, went over a a river of sorts that flowed through the center of the Mathari Valley. It was a brown river. It was a river of sewage. And along the edge of the river, Uh, The trash had piled up, and I saw a group of men gathered, and the men were operating some kind of machinery, and I asked our guide what, what that was, and he explained that it was a still, and that they were making alcohol from the sewage water. It was an unforgettable vision of me of what I would call anti flourishing. The Mathari Valley is the opposite of the garden that God intended human life to be. It's a place of hopelessness. And it's the reason why we're going there as a church family to partner with the missionaries who work in that place. And as part of our Take Root initiative, are committed to trying to lift the level of hope in that particular place. The Bible tells us that one day there will be no longer places like the Mathari Valley. One day, the scriptures say, a great change is coming to this world. And we hear of this particular vision, the anti-vision of the one I've just described, painted for us in the book of Revelation. And I want to read to you from God's word, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and women and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down for these words 
are trustworthy and true. And then in the next chapter we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. A great change is coming. The Bible teaches us. And thus, as the people of God, we have hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Over this past month, we have been talking together about the subject of hope. We've been exploring the variety of reasons that Christians are, or at least ought to be, the most hopeful people on planet Earth. We've tried to stress that the Christian understanding of hope is different than some of the common conceptions of hope that are popular in our time. Christian hope is not mere optimism. It's not here in a rational sense that things are just going to get better. It's not a, a high confidence in evolutionary progress of human beings just fixing it and sorting it all out. It's not a, 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 an escape to some kind of pie in the sky when we die sort of release and removal from this world. Christian hope is fundamentally grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in what God has to say to us about himself and about his capacity to renew and to redeem our lives. Christians have hope because they believe that with the power of God, sins can be forgiven, second chances are possible, new beginnings can open up every single day. Christians have hope because they believe that God is going to ultimately restore his creation to its original state. In fact, to an even better state than when it began. Christians believe that God has invited us into being hope bearers in this world until that time comes, to be people who work for justice and beauty, who share the good news of the gospel with other people and invite them into the, the life of the kingdom of God. But today I want to close out the series that we've been in by reflecting on what has been historically one of the greatest reasons for hope in the Christian church throughout the ages. And by that I mean the hope of heaven. I want to think with you about what the Bible really teaches us about the nature and the hope of heaven. 
someday you and I are going to die. Hard news for a Sunday morning, but the truth. Someday every single one of us within the sound of my voice is going to expire. And in that very moment, our souls are going to leave our bodies. The Bible says. Near-death experiences suggest. Those souls will leave our bodies because they are eternal creations, our souls. And they will go in that instant to a dimension of reality beyond this world, beyond anything that we can now see with our eyes. And if we are among the faithful, they will go to a place that Jesus has prepared for you and for me and for those who trust in his name. Now that, that destination is called heaven. The Bible describes it. Jesus describes it. And as I'm going to explain further in a moment, this heaven is a very good space, but it is not your eternal resting place. It's not where you're going to be forevermore. In fact, when Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, there are many rooms, there are many mansions, as some translations have it, we often misunderstand the meaning. We think of, our, of heaven as lifestyles of the rich and famous for all of us, forever and ever, amen. But in actuality, the Greek word for dwelling place or for the domicile that that Jesus uses in his teaching there is the Greek word monai, which in its original sense is much more akin to our word for apartment or motel room. To speak of monai is to speak of temporary dwelling places. The place that God is going to take us to immediately after our souls leave our bodies will be a temporary dwelling place, like the apartment we lived in in college, some of us. Or like the motel room that we may have stayed at when we were on our way in a great big move to our new home. Nonetheless, this room that Jesus is speaking of has got some particular characteristics to it that are very much worth noting. And I think are sources, for, at least for me, of hope and anticipation. The Bible only speaks, of course, in poetry about it in metaphor about this prepared room, but here are some of the big ideas that we can pull together from the various teachings of the New Testament about heaven. First of all, heaven is where God is fully present now. Fully present now. Our God touches our world here. He penetrates this plane of existence here in very significant ways, but he is present to people, to beings in that other dimension in an even more palpable way, a dramatically more palpable way than any of us are experiencing in this life. Because of that, heaven is also where God's worth is fully recognized and completely honored. Nobody in heaven has any doubts about whether God exists or about who God is or what he is really like. Nobody ever questions uh, what our response to God should actually be. And as a result, heaven is where God's uh, work is fully done. His will is fully done. Everyone who lives in the kingdom of heaven obeys the king. Everyone who is in the kingdom of heaven 
advances God's purposes, not out of a sense, sense of duty or obligation, but out of a perpetual sense of opportunity. Look at who he is. Wow! And I get to be with him. And these gifts that I have, I can use for him. Everyone does his will joyfully in heaven. Not because God insists upon it, but because he is so holy and he is so good, we want to do it. Because we see him so fully. There is, however, more to what the Bible says on this particular topic, and and that's really what I want to explore with you before we leave here together today. The Scriptures also teach that heaven is going to be a place of rejoicing and relationship. A wonderful place of rejoicing and relationship, such as we only really get to taste a little bit through our even most rapturous experiences of relationship here on earth. The Bible pictures heaven as like the greatest family reunion or school reunion that you have ever been to or could even possibly imagine. In fact, the book of Genesis declares that when God's faithful servant Abraham, remember Abraham? We talked a lot about him this year. When Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, he was gathered to his people. The scripture says he was brought in to the great reunion with those who had gone before him. Jesus further unpacks the image in the New Testament. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He'll gather around the heavenly banquet table in a glorious feast of relationship with God and one another. Now, I I will confess to you that when I come across these biblical images, there's a little bit uh, inside of me that, that struggles with the goodness of them. And the reason is because I've been to family reunions. And I've been to some school reunions. And there is at least this little part of me that, 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 that thinks that being with certain of those people forever might not be such a wonderful thing. And, and, and if I have to be in a heaven that's filled with people just like me, I wonder how long heaven's going to stay a very heavenly kind of place. And maybe you've wondered these things yourself. It's not like we're not trying to be heaven-ready. Isn't that the truth? I mean, we're trying. I think the very fact that you're listening to me today, that you're here in this place, is a sign that you are leaning towards trying to get prepared to be heaven-ready. So we come to worship. You know, we we resolve as we go out the door, we're going to try to be more forgiving. We're going to try to be more generous. We're going to try and be more kind and patient with other people. Five minutes after we walk out, we're yelling at the kids. We're irritated with our spouse. There's chaos in the parking lot as we jockey for position there. That's just puzzling to me. How is heaven going to stay heavenly with people 
they're like me. How's that going to work? Well, I don't know if you remember or even had this kind of experiment back in elementary school, but I think back to a, an experiment we ran. I think it was in my fifth grade science class with Mr. Lindsay. I, I remember he gave everybody paper clips. Everybody got a few paper clips on their desk. And then I remember we were also given a, a very large piece of metal. It looked like an eraser, but it was a magnet. And, and we were told to take the magnet and, and to take one of the paper clips and rub the magnet across the surface of the paper clip. Do you remember what happened when we did that? If you ever did that? What happened? The paper clip got magnetized. That's right. That's just right. And now you could take that little paper clip and you could touch it to the other paper clips on your desk and you could lift them up. And in fact, even that one paper clip exerted enough force that it actually made the one next to it a little bit magnetic. Do you see where this is going? Do you see how helpful this image is for us? Because what was happening in that interaction between the magnet and, and the paperclip is, is that the magnetic field of that larger metal was starting to reorient the electrons in the lesser piece of metal and align those electrons with its direction. The character of that greater metal was so powerful, it could actually realign the character of that little paperclip. This is something akin to what the Apostle John suggests is going to happen to you and to me and to others in heaven. Dear friends, writes John, now we are children of God. Right now, those of us who have opened our lives to Jesus Christ have been invited into and made part of the family of God. We already exist because of that reality as people who have been in some contact with the Father's character and are already exhibiting some of our Heavenly Father's character. You, you, you're probably not exactly the same person you were in terms of character before you really submitted yourself to the experience of the community of faith, to the study of the Scriptures. But like all children, we're still untrained. We're unaligned in all kinds of ways. Our emotions, our thoughts, our impulses still ricochet around wildly like electrons just working on their own. And so we, we talk in certain ways and we act in certain ways and we think in certain ways that, that produce consequences that sometimes shock and discourage even ourselves. Have you ever been discouraged with yourself? Shocked? Did I really do that? Did I really say that? Am I really thinking that? And if we're shocked and discouraged, think how many other people are shocked and discouraged with us and we don't even know it. We can't even see it. We keep trying to do something about this. And the things we do are good things. We begin a, a journey of intentional spiritual growth that involves trying to purposely rub up against the magnet of God. We read our scriptures. We pray. We come into the community of faith. 
We practice other spiritual disciplines. These are wonderful things. They, they give us some contact with God. He begins to realign our character in significant ways. But the challenge is that while we're in this world, we're rusty paperclips. And, and in the experiment, if one takes the magnet and rubs it across a rusty paperclip, the realignment is slower. It's less effective. Our brains and our bodies have been so subtly and steadily shaped by sin, corroded by sin, rusted by the effects of sin inside of us and outside of us in the culture, that it's hard for us to get full contact with God. We just can't get the contact we need with God that would actually produce even more change within us. Though it's worth getting as much as we can. John goes on to say, however, that what we will be has not yet been made known. What he's saying here is what we'll ultimately be capable of, what will ultimately happen for us, we can't yet fully see. For we know that when God appears, in other words, when we're in the presence, the full presence of God, in heaven, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, the moment that you get to heaven, you will be as close to God as the angels are right now. The moment that you get to heaven, you will see him as fully and completely and perfectly as they see him now. You're going to fall on your knees in that moment, if we still have knees. Oh, I guess spiritual knees in absolute abject awe and adoration before God. You're going to be magnetized in an instant by the holiness and the wonder and the power of his glory as the citizens of heaven are already magnetized to that glory. And Paul puts it like this, I declare to you that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But listen, I tell you a mystery, we will all be changed. We'll be utterly transformed. When you leave your flesh, and your soul goes to heaven, you'll get contact with God fully and forever. And you'll be transformed by that presence. What's left of the sin, the corrosion, the rust will dissolve and disappear. You'll be so close to God that your soul's orientation will be permanently aligned to the vector of his kingdom's life. The process of sanctification or being made holy that began for you here in this world will be completed in heaven with what is called your glorification. You're becoming glorious like God is. And what that means is that the glorious character of God will become your character entirely. You will love God with all that you are. And it won't be hard to do that. You will want nothing better than to honor and please him. You will love everyone around you as fully as God loves them right now. 
It will be effortless. You will not have to work at it. You will simply be like He is in regards to all relationships. And given who I am today, that makes me hopeful. I hope it makes you hopeful. It would be enough, I think, if that was the end of the story, but the wonder, the wonder of heaven doesn't stop there. In a sense, it's actually only really the beginning. That great realignment process, that glorification, it's just the start of the wonder of what God is going to do. The Bible teaches that there's going to come a day when God will bring an end to history as we know it. Uh, It will be sudden stop, curtain down. And when he does that, all of humanity, both those who have died and those who are still living here on the earth, will find them suddenly themselves transported into the presence of Jesus Christ for a final reckoning and accounting, a moment of judgment. And then something will happen that reveals the third essential meaning of the word heaven as the Bible gives it to us. The first essential meaning of the word heaven as the Bible gives to us is that heaven is the code word for the source of divine provision upon which all of us depend. We are created by, sustained by, carried by the power of God, the kingdom of heaven, moment by moment, and we can't see that. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. That's the first sense of heaven. Secondly, heaven is the present dwelling place of God to which our souls go after our bodies die. That's how I've started this message today. But finally, heaven is the future state of life on a new earth. And that's what I want to really underline before I send you on your way today. Listen to how the Apostle John describes it in the revelation that Jesus gives him. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. What, what, what this revelation is saying is that the Bible says there's going to come a day when heaven as we think of it now, the kind of heaven I've been describing that exists now, And the earth as we know it now and live in it now are going to pass away. The sea of separation, the ocean of difference between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm will be gone. And at that time, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was always speaking of, that glorious realm where, which is occasionally and partially broken into our world in acts of love, in the coming of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, that, that temporary partial encounter we have with God will break through fully and will alter life forever. It will be in all and around all. It will be all, the kingdom. And on that day, heaven and earth will, in a sense, remarry. They will be permanently bonded to each other. They will become as one flesh, in a sense. 
And the divorce between God and humanity that God established at the fall uh, will, will be undone. It will be fully repaired. And like a bride descending a staircase in all of her glorious beauty, those who have responded to God's invitation to intimacy with Him will descend from the former heaven to take up their new life on a physical earth once again. And you and I will move from that temporary lodging place, the Monais we talked about earlier, to our permanent estate, to our forever home on a totally redeemed earth. Humanity on that earth will never again view God as a peripheral concern. God will never again be an afterthought. A sometimes thought. God will dwell at the very center of human life. We're going to draw our identity from God completely. It won't come from our marriages, our, our ministries, our money. It, it, it won't come from anything but the relationship we have with God. He will be the radiant core of our life. And His love will fill us up and move out through us and satisfy every single hunger that we've ever had completely. And we will forget the pains of the past. As awful and tragic and difficult as the agonies that we may have endured in this life have been, the tears that sin and death once brought upon people, God will wipe away now. He will make them untrue. As Tolkien says, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That old order of things, the Bible says, will be replaced by justice and rejoicing, by peace and security forevermore. And in that age to come, the earth will be restored to an Eden-like condition. Revelation 22 gives us this vision. It describes a world that's not this wispy thing in the clouds. It's a real, tangible earth. It's a place of gleaming cities and lush vegetation. It's a place where good water flows and, and, there, and food is abundant and the old wounds of war over resources are finally healed among the nations. And I hope you can tell this world that you're going to be going into is a profoundly physical world. It's a world of succulent tastes and fragrant aromas and marvelous textures and real substance. And it's going to require a genuine body to live in that world. A real body to enjoy this life. Thus the Apostles' Creed declares, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. They go together. The body and the life everlasting. They go together. And the reason that the apostles believed that is because they had seen one of those bodies. They had met one of those bodies in the person of the resurrected Jesus. And it changed their perspective on life and the future forevermore. On one level, the body they met in Jesus when he came back from the grave was it was a lot like the body you and I have now. Thomas was able to touch it. Jesus was able to eat breakfast with it. Uh, he was able to walk down the Emmaus Road with it. And sit down and 
share time with others in it. And yet this body of the resurrected Jesus was also different in some critical ways. So different that it could somehow pass through grave clothes and appear behind locked doors and was not even immediately recognizable to the disciples when they first encountered him. This body had transcendent properties to it. It was an immortal body. It was like the body you're going to have that you're going to have on this new earth. So don't be too concerned when you get out of the shower and look in the mirror. I mean, take care of what you have. That's stewardship. But don't get overly discouraged when you see that body breaking down because it was never meant to last forever. That was just never God's intention. And to paraphrase Paul, there is a wonderful mystery about life. God's plan is for you to one day trade that body in for an infinitely more enduring and capable physicality. In a flash, says Paul, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For by the grace of God, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. With immortality. I think of Bob Galehood in this regard. Bob was a friend, a colleague, a pastor to many of us in this church. He was a man of amazing complexity, a martial artist, a mystic, uh, a loving counselor, a, a terrific father and friend and husband. And when cancer began to wend its way through the cells of Bob's body, he never gave up hope. He lived with an amazing kind of almost indefatigable hope that stunned the rest of us, impressed the rest of us, humbled the rest of us. And he would say things like, I know God is going to heal me. I'd like it to be while I'm still in this body. But I know it will be so. He will heal me when I'm done with this body. I know he will. And Bob would end almost every one of his written communications with the words of the renowned poet pastor from Scotland, George MacDonald. And the words some of us can recite because we heard them so often from him. Bob would say, a great good is coming. A great good is coming. And it gave him great hope. That is the point of view that makes followers of Jesus different. This is the point of view that makes the followers of Christ, unusual people in a world of despair and cynicism. In the face of all that daunts and haunts humanity, we believe that a great good is coming that will redeem everything. 
And so even when we are tired from paddling and we do get tired from swimming against life's currents, we keep swimming on. We wake up, Christians, we wake up every day looking for the inbreaking of that coming kingdom, daring to believe in new possibilities and second chances. We work in every way we know how to be forerunners of that kingdom that is even now moving towards us that God will finally and fully bring. And in a world where so many people insist upon seeing the glass as half full or already drained or hopeless, we're hopeful. We are hopeful people because a great change is coming. A great good is coming. And as you go out today, I hope you will be filled afresh with it and that this is for you very good news. Would you pray with me, please? Great God, you are so good. And today we put our trust once again in you. Fill us up with your hope. Make us agents of that hope in the Mathari Valley, in our homes, to all of the places that we will go in this week to come. And in some way, Lord God, may that coming kingdom come through our actions, our words, our way of being with people until that day when you come again. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.